Shalom and welcome everyone to the ICJ webinar series. We took a break over uh, the Christmas, New Year holiday, but we're back in the saddle here. And of course, uh, we're about day 95 or so of Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza. And uh, today we're going to deal with the court case, which will open tomorrow at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Uh, which is a petition from uh, the Republic of South Africa that it takes some sort of preventative measures and a ruling uh, that Israel is in violation of its obligations under the Genocide Convention of 1948. So it's a serious issue. Israel, South Africa, with Palestinian Authority, a lot of Arab, Muslim, other countries helping is charging Israel with committing genocide, failing to prevent genocide against the Palestinian people, especially in Gaza. And uh, that is a very, very serious charge, especially in light of uh, all this genocidal campaigns against the Jewish people to be charged with this is deeply uh, um, repugnant to so many Jews and those of us who support them. To help us understand uh, what's going on in The Hague, we're going to Holland itself, the Netherlands, to Andrew Tucker, our friend who is an international lawyer, originally from Australia. He's studied in uh, Australia and the Netherlands. He's uh, practiced there, and he's uh, taught in Australia, he, but he specializes in legal issues surrounding Israel in the Middle East. And he's the director of Think, the Israel, the, excuse me, the uh, the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation. Former director of Christians for Israel International, based in Holland, and also co-author of the book Israel on Trial. Good to have you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, David. Okay, so uh, Andrew and I have a lot in common. We we uh, love the Lord. We. Uh, love Israel. Uh, we're both lawyers. Uh, of course, he's more involved in uh, practice in international law and the actual practice. I haven't practiced uh, in a you know professional way for years. And we're also married to lovely Dutch ladies. So, uh, uh, Andrew, help us understand what's going on starting tomorrow at the Peace Palace, the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Yeah, so um, the uh, 29th of December last year, South Africa initiated uh, proceedings by submitting an application to the International Court of Justice claiming that Israel's committing genocide um, in its campaign in uh, Gaza. I mean, you know, we've all seen since the 7th of October, um, pretty much from the beginning, People have been arguing genocide, uh, even the, from the very beginning of Israel's campaign. You know, they, uh, this was the immediate cry, um, and that Israel is again <clears throat> just pursuing its um, campaign, really, which it's which it's uh, launched ever since it was existing in 1948 to destroy the Palestinian people, and we're just seeing a further. Impl uh, application of this uh, claim. Um, 
the there are a lot of human rights institutions within the United Nations that have been looking at this. The UN Human Rights Council Committee of Inquiry has brought out several reports. The Committee on the um, the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People have been arguing. Uh, there, there are lots of them. And so you have all this raft of UN human rights experts who produce these reports and they say, look, the, the, the um, number of deaths of civilians in Gaza is evidence that Israel is not just seeking to eliminate Hamas, but is actually intending to destroy and annihilate the, uh, the Palestinian people as such. So this is a really nasty, horrible, malignant um, claim, which which goes to the heart of the who the Jewish people are, really, doesn't it? And uh, and using the legal mechanism of the Genocide Convention to do it, and it's problematic because, as we just talked before going live, um, what South Africa is asking the court to do is to issue an order, which it says the court has the power to do, an order to immediately call upon Israel to cease its campaign in Gaza. They want an immediate ceasefire. A preventative measure. Exactly. Yeah. So they say, um, you know, there's such a high risk of genocide here that the court is obliged legally and morally to, to intervene to stop this horrendous um, campaign of Israel's. And uh, it's an 84-page application they've submitted, and they frame it in this way of, as I said, it, it's as if this campaign after the 7th of October is, is just part of a longer-term strategy of Israel to destroy the Palestinians. Um, so there, there is, there's a few aspects of this, the, the definition of genocide. Okay. So genocide is, as you say, is defined under the genocide convention, 1948. So we, this was a, a new crime invented to deal with the horrors of the Holocaust and the Shoah. And it was a very Jewish initiative. Raphael Lemkin, Jewish lawyer from Poland, uh, he's one of the key players in Philip Sands' uh, impressive book, East West Street. Uh, he talks about Lemkin, he talks about um, Hirsch Lauterpacht and these great Jewish figures during the 1940s who were very involved in the development of international law to deal with crimes against humanity and international war crimes. So this is all in the context of Nazi elimination of the Jewish people. And Lemkin was a lawyer from Poland. He went to the United States during the war and, and advocated strongly for a criminal law regime, which after the, you know, once the Nazis would to be defeated, that, that, that there would be a structure to deal with this um, this crime, which you know we've never seen before, on such a mass scale, you know. on such a mass scale, um, and so it was a very controversial idea, of course. 
creating a new crime and how do you define it and how do you make sure that this criminal regime is not going to be misused in some way. Uh, but after several years, it was adopted with, by the United Nations in the form of the, uh, of the Convention on the Elimination of Genocide. And this definition, genocide, was introduced into the international legal lexicon. It was, the, the word itself is an invention. It you know, died in uh, 1944 only. I mean, it's right that long. So it's about you know genocide, genus people side the the killing of a people. That's the that's at the heart of it. And of course, we know about killing of peoples through the history of the Jewish people. I think it's the only people in the world which has really been subject to genocidal. Attempts time and again, hasn't it, to to destroy the Jewish people from the face of the earth? Now, so that claim, that idea, is now being turned against the Jewish people themselves. It's been the the convention uh, really lay dormant for quite some decades until more recently, and it was revived when we had the conflicts in Rwanda. And in the Balkans, the former Yugoslavia, so it was then activated. Um, it's been used against Myanmar. So the court has been implicated more recently in genocide cases, and it's kind of taken upon itself this jurisdiction to even um, to even issue these provisional measures to prevent genocide from happening. Uh, and that's what South Africa is using here. This it's, is new. This is new. It, it is. It's very new. Uh, it's very controversial. And, um, you know, if you take, take the wonder... Yeah, sorry, yeah. I think it's a good, uh, yeah, you could uh, talk about Rwanda a little, Darfur. I think there were some instances where people started saying, we have to do something about this. But what you're talking about is injunctive relief as a legal remedy uh, where a court makes a preliminary ruling to sort of freeze a situation, cease and desist, a temporary restraining order, something like that, which there's all sorts of legal standards that are going to be very hard for South Africa to prove right now. Yes. Well, there's two. that's right. There's, there's two sides that on the one side, yes, it's very difficult to prove genocide in this case. How can you file it a few weeks ago and, and already build your case? You're talking about a mass, mass crime you're trying to prove. And here a court case is going to rule in a couple of weeks. It takes years to develop these. Yeah. Yeah, well, this this is the bizarre thing about it. You're you're right, um, but the dangerous thing about this, the court does not actually have to. South Africa doesn't have to prove genocide. It just has to prove that there's uh, or persuade the court there's a possibility, a, a real possibility, that genocide may be committed. Um. And if the court's satisfied at that very lower threshold limits, it um, it could I issue an order like this. And then, as you say, it's a it's a temporary order pending a more deep 
uh, analysis of the situation. But of course, if there is an order, Israel has to stop the fighting, mm. which means Hamas can regroup and and you know that's been the whole issue about ceasefires, hasn't it? That we've talked about the last weeks and months. Israel's Security Council hasn't been able to pass when the U.S. keeps vetoing it because Hamas needs to be defeated. But here, if they can get the International Court of Justice to do it. That's a real victory for Hamas and, and the other yeah. submarine. Yeah. Um, now, I think the big issue that, or um, it, the, the big issue that's going to come up, there will be hearings tomorrow, Thursday morning, and Friday morning. Thursday morning, South Africa puts it case, it has an whole ar army of lawyers are representing it. And there, many of them are these well-known anti-Israel figures, like John Dugard, uh, former um, special rapporteur for the Human Rights Council, uh, very hostile to to Israel. Um, and Israel will put its case on Friday. It's represented by Professor Malcolm Shaw, United Kingdom, uh, a wonderful, a brilliant international lawyer. So they're in the they're in good hands. He's been uh, representing uh, several cases in, like this in front of the ICJ. Even some <laughs> criminals that you know you got to someone's got to represent them, and but yeah. he's doing well there. Yeah, yeah. So he's one of the leading experts on international law, and so um, we don't obviously know exactly the case that Israel's going to be put, but. Uh, in all likelihood, I think it's going to revolve around this issue of intent. How do you improve? Uh, uh, how do you prove that Israel has the intention not just of defeating Hamas, um, but of actually eliminating the Palestinian people as such? Because that's the plan. Um, and you know the high number of civilian casualties, and there are high numbers, although nobody knows how many are actually being killed. The numbers that are coming out of Gaza are, of course, Hamas figures. Um, so we have to take them uh, with a grain of salt. Let's assume that 20,000 civilians have been killed, as they claim. We don't know how many of those are civilians and how many of them are terrorist combatants. They, they say over 23,000, but they're not differentiating between combatants and non-combatants. Yeah, yeah. So this will be an issue. I mean, the court really has very little basis for deciding um, even the number of deaths. Yes. Um, although part of the problem with this case is South Africa re relies on all of these UN reports that have been coming out from the Human Rights Council and all these committees, which are very pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, and they tend to be written and supported by leading international lawyers who are all on this bandwagon of, you know, Israel bashing. But they're very persuasive reports. And the court tends to take them as being self-evident. Right? And if the Human Rights Council says that genocide is being committed, then the court takes it seriously and kind of regards it as proof. In fact, many of these reports are relying very much on Hamas information, Palestinian biased information, um, which is a whole topic in itself. So the, the whole set of proceedings is very 
biased. It's very uh, swung against Israel. It's kind of stacked. Even even the judge justices, this, this uh, judicial body is is uh, not your normal court. It's politicized. Very, very much so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the court itself is. Um, this is one of the problems with the International Court of Justice. Fifteen judges, they all represent different countries or regions. Uh, they all have their political biases and political persuasions. And um, so, like, the, even the new United States judge, who I believe will be sitting on this case, um, and there have been a number of new judges appointed, uh, she's very hostile to Israel. Yes. She's shown that in her legal writings already. So it's going to be hard for Israel. Um, but the question of intent is is going to be a hard one for Hamas to for uh, for South Africa to uh, to to establish. Let's go into this because you know you're in the area of of war crimes, which are violations of. Geneva Conventions on Warfare, which there's a series of them, some passed after World War One, some after World War Two. Uh, there's crimes against humanity. It's like a an ascending order, crimes against humanity, which has uh, shocked the conscience. And I think the the chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court in the Hague, a separate body, and not only the UN, but very much politicized, like the ICJ. Uh, that Karim Khan, this new chief prosecutor, he's already, uh, his predecessor launched an investigation against Israel on these issues, and he, but he said it looks like Hamas committed crimes against humanity once he met with some of the Israelis, not the government, but Israelis who suffered through October 7th. It's quite interesting because he's Muslim and all, but uh, and and what makes these special, Andrew, is is that uh, one of the aspects normally, if you commit murder, even premeditated murder, uh, and you could be up, you know, for, for death penalty or something, the state has to arrest you and try you within a certain number of years. There's a statute of limitations because memories fade and such. Got to present your your evidence. But we're talking about crimes that there's no statute of limitation. This was one of the uh, innovations after World War II where you could hunt the Nazis for the rest of their lives. And genocide is sort of at the top, but it has this, uh, in uh, criminal law, has this mens rea requirement. Can you explain that a little? Where some crimes have to have a, a mental element. I think this is what you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. It's built into the definition of genocide itself. There has to be a purpose or intention. It's the hard, and let me add, it's the hardest of all all of them to prove. So what, you know, they could have gone, South Africa could, could have gone crimes against humanity or something like that. They've gone all the way up to this, which you have to prove intent. That's, that's right. And they, they have to use this crime because uh, it's the only crime that the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction over. Everything else is at the International Criminal Court, as you mentioned. Well, that's that's important to know, and that's yeah. helpful. Yeah. 
So South Africa is deliberately using this convention and this crime of genocide in order to get before the Court of Justice because it knows it has this power of injunction, which the criminal court does not have. Karim Khan cannot impose a criminal injunction on an Israeli leader. It has to go through this very long process of uh, identifying and prosecuting before, and, and that takes years. Uh, so they've gone for the genocide convention, but genocide indeed has this mens rea, this intention uh, criterion, which says, um, and it's at the very core of the crime because um, you you only have a you only have a, a case of genocide if there's an intention to destroy the people as such. So even widespread killing is not genocide unless there's you can show that the intention is to destroy the group as a whole. Now that this is a really hard one because um, hard one for South Africa to prove because um, Israel uh, is fighting a war of self-defense. Right? There's no doubt about this that. That under international humanitarian law, the law of war, Israel has a right, and everybody accepted this after the seventh of October that it was Hamas that launched an invasion into Israel. This was an attack, not just an, a single terrorist attack, but an invasion, um, and Israel has a right to defend itself against that threat. So that's not in question. It, Obviously, Israel has to act within the restraints of proportionality and necessity and all the other things that you know international law imposes. Um, and there are arguments about this, you know, whether um, whether Israel is using too much force. Um, th that's a whole different argument that you have under international humanitarian law, the law of war. Mm -hmm. Genocide is a very different thing. It has to say it's not about excessive use of force. It's about the intention to kill and destroy the Palestinians as a group. That's the claim that South Africa is making. And a lot of people say if Israel tends out, they're doing a bad job. Because yeah, exactly. The population just keeps growing and growing. Yeah. But I think the problem is that there are some Israeli officials. They may not be the ultimate decision makers. But some guys who, out of anger, emotion, you can understand it to some extent. They've said some things about wiping out the Gaza and stuff. Well, that's why I think Bibi made you know a statement fairly on is you know you're about the Amaleks and we're going to wipe them out like you know. Uh, and I and another one was a statement by President Herzog where he talked about. Um, he said, look, the Palestinian people as a whole in Gaza are supporting Hamas. There's a lot of... Are these cited by South Africa? Yeah, yeah they're all cited. So they, they pull out all these quotations over the last months uh, and list them. Uh, they don't put them in context. They don't talk about the retractions that were made. Um, there's even a statement by somebody who doesn't even exist. Mm. So here's a list of, uh, from memory, of Hamas statements of genocide against the Jews, including their own charter. And it's just uh, a little quick compilation, pages and pages, where they 
they deliver say the Jews have to and will be eradicated from the earth. Right. That's genocide. <laughs> and it's, as you say, it's in their charter. It's in the definition of their charter. Uh, whereas you look at Israel, uh, you compare it with the Israeli Declaration of Independence, which I suppose is the Israeli uh, quasi-constitution. It talks about democracy. It talks about human rights. It talks about for Jews and non-Jews to live in the, the state of Israel. So you can't claim that Israel as a state has a genocidal intent like Hamas does. You've got they they have to prove it on the facts, um, and the facts I think are very slim. And you know, there's a lot of evidence that Israel will bring forth about uh, yes, a lot of civilians are being killed in Gaza, but Israel is doing an awful lot to limit civilian casualties. It's fighting a very complex urban war uh, where Hamas is in tunnels deep underground. The only way to get to Hamas is to destroy buildings. So, um, you know, it is hard. We see a lot of destruction in Gaza, don't we? And, uh, you know, flattening of whole parts of cities. So it is hard to explain, but it is explainable. And it, it's a difficult story to tell for Israel because the media is very much against them. But... Um, there is a lot of evidence on the other side for Israel to prove that it's taking extreme measures to limit the number of uh, Palestinian deaths in Gaza. And the reason there are a number is, is the Hamas use of human shields, the use of uh, mosques and uh, church, uh, well, even churches and uh, schools and, and hospitals to hide their military infrastructure, the tunnels that are built underneath these, um, uh, underneath humanitarian um, infrastructure, make it extremely hard for Israel to uh, to fight this war. So I think these will be the issues that will be talked about, um, and the courts will have to make a decision in the next few weeks, mm. and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Look, uh, uh, any court case, the first thing you have to ask uh, is jurisdiction. And uh, the um, International Court of Justice normally has consensual jurisdiction. Everyone signs up to the court, and but you, both parties have to consent that the ICJ will hear the case and that they will abide by the ruling and the ICJ did a ruling uh, on on the security barrier a few years ago, uh, and Israel didn't participate, but they've uh, consented to the jurisdiction now. Why? Well, that's a really good question. Um, so the court has the court has two jurisdictions or powers. One is the the power to issue an advisory opinion to the General Assembly, the Security Council, or other UN organs. Exactly. So there is actually another case pending at the moment before the court, which is an application by the General Assembly for an advisory opinion on the um, on the the legal consequences of Israel's prolonged occupation, right? And there will be hearings on that in February. That that's another case. It's going to be a longer case. 
the other jurisdiction the court has is the one you mentioned, and that is to um, to make a decision where parties consensually bring a case to the court. So you're absolutely parties are states, members. They're, they're states exactly. They have to be member states of the of the UN Charter. Um, so in this case, South Africa is saying, well, South Africa is a member state of the Charter and also signatory to the uh, to the Convention on Genocide. So is Israel. South Africa says we have a dispute with Israel about the uh, interpretation and application of the Genocide Convention, and it's that dispute which South That's Africa. It's awful tenable. That's very tenable uh, connection nexus to. Uh... So I'm actually I'm not sure that Israel has consented to the court's jurisdiction. I've. Um, they'll that's... question the the jurisdiction issue, won't they? They'll, they'll... I, I think they will. I think they will argue that at least that's what I would do. I would say we don't have a dispute with South Africa, right? We have a difference of opinion, maybe. South Africa thinks we're committing genocide. We don't think we're committing genocide. That That's not a dispute that we have. So we don't consent to the- What's the harm to South Africa? What's that? What's the harm to South Africa? This is- Yeah, well, that, well that's- Yeah, well, I don't think South Africa needs to prove a, a harm. It has standing simply because it's a party to the convention. Yeah, okay. Um, although one of the arguments it does make is says South Africa says the court has to issue an injunction here um, to protect South Africa's own obligation to prevent genocide. Uh, it's, it's tenable. It's their it's their reputation as uh, you know toppling apartheid and exactly standing for justice for all oppressed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I think it is a tenable case, but on the other hand, David, it's um, the courts, as you said earlier, it's a very political institution. It's going to be very persuaded by all of these UN uh, documents and statements, which uh, which talk about genocide. They say there's evidence of genocide or potential genocide, I think it's going to be very hard for the court to come out with a ruling that says, no, there's no risk, there's no potential of genocide here, um, we will throw the case out. Mm. I, I, Unfortunately, even though legally speaking, I think it's a long shot, mm. politically Big risk that uh, this is not going to end up well for Israel. Yeah, a lot of these uh, members of this judicial panel—they're already uh, um, in the in the bank for the Palestinians, probably. They are, I'm afraid, because you you have to get appointed with the approval of all the nations, and you need that Islamic uh, block of nations which are, sit in the non-aligned movement and really control that, which is the majority of the UN votes. Yeah. So they, they, uh, they owe their position to, to these countries. Yeah, um, 
this thing of of injunctive relief when I'm looking at it normally if uh you know you want a temporary restraining order there you know someone's alleging uh spousal abuse or something and you say you can't go near someone within 300 yards of someone for the next year or so until this case is heard or you know there's different sorts of injunctive relief that courts have come up with but there's a whole test for whether you you get it uh there has to be irreparable harm in the absence of an order um the th- the threatened energy uh, the threatened injury outweighs the harm of the opposing party if they're told to say cease and desist um it has to be uh um in line with public interest and the the party petitioning in this case South Africa has to have a substantial likelihood of success on the merits that's the normal sort of analysis that a court has to go through to issue an order that's like a preventative measure. There may be genocide going on here. The ICJ wants to look at it. It may take us a couple of years. Until then, Israel, you have to stop fighting in Gaza. That's what they're asking for here. And Israel's, a, Israel's concerned with this. In what you've seen in the development of these preventative orders in cases of genocide, is this now a part of international law, that that normal process, that test for injunctive relief? Well, I think the, the, the unique thing about this case is that this is all in the context of a war that was incited and, and initiated by Hamas itself, which is embedded in the Palestinians. So, the, you know, in some of these genocide cases, the, the the conflict is initiated by the party that's being alleged to be committing genocide, right? And in, in equity, you have to come in with clean hands. This is yeah. equitable relief. You have to yeah. clean hands yourself. Well, that's it. And and um, here, the, the huge problem that Israel faces if they face an injunctive order is that indeed, and this is the whole discussion about ceasefires, is that they're going to the enemy is going to re-weaponize itself and re-establish itself to launch further attacks on Israel. Mm. So this that that is a key argument. Um, uh, my understanding, I mean, the whole legal framework for injunctive relief in the court is not exactly the same as it might be in a domestic case. More political, um, but I, there will have to be some analysis, and Israel definitely will argue say, "Well, look, yeah, that the 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 harm that an, that an injunction would cause to Israel is far outweighs the potential harm that may be caused to uh, to the Palestinians." And the harm to the Palestinians could end tomorrow if Hamas just laid down their arms. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, just uh, one more question as we look at this. It's very unusual, but the court allows the two parties in this case, South Africa and Israel, have the right to add a justice themselves to the panel. So it expands from 15 to 17 members. Uh, and 
it, that makes it different. You've got Malcolm Shaw and Israel's legal team presenting the case, and they have a certain time and certain rules, but uh, then the court uh, retires back to chambers, and the panel discusses the whole issues among themselves, and that's a lot less formal. And he, uh, Israel has appointed former Chief Justice Aaron Barak to sit on the panel. I don't know if you know, uh, you know anything in particular how you think he might do here, but let's help the people understand who he is. He uh, became Chief Justice of Israel Supreme Court in the early 90s. And he basically led this progressive uh, judicial activism here in Israel, where the the Supreme Court of Israel just took over all sorts of decisions, or uh, you know, of the executive and the legislative, the Knesset and the cabinet, saying that's unreasonable. You shouldn't do that. You and and took all sorts of powers uh, unto itself. And he is highly respected in international legal circles, especially uh, the progressive left. He, you know, he, he's highly respected. But and we've just gone through almost a year of the judicial reform debate. He actually came out. I, I found out he actually came out against these reforms. Uh, I, I didn't know that, but that's quite interesting. And so Netanyahu has chosen him, even though he, in the eyes of many on the center right, he's a bogeyman. But mm. there's probably a lot of these justices on the panel who have cited his rulings. Uh, so he may have a position, an inside position in chamber to to persuade some people. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. It's a um, it's a very interesting choice. I think. I, I, what I think the, the the thinking probably is from the Israeli government perspective is that, uh, as you say, he's extremely well respected internationally. Um, they will be hoping that he will be influential on the Western judges on the court, mm -hmm. who are, are also very left leaning. Um, and they will look up to Aaron Barak and they will respect his views. It all assumes that Barak will take a hard line on on the issues. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the other, the fear of some people is that Barak is going to be- He's not going to be patriotic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a worry that he will be critical of the IDF. And and might open the door a little bit for the court to be to criticise the IDF's conduct in Gaza. He's, um, I mean, he's not a he, he's not an international lawyer in the sense that his career has been as an Israeli domestic Supreme Court judge and a, and a brilliant one. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote very important opinion after the advisory opinion on the uh, uh, on the wall, on the security uh, barrier, the barrier, security barrier, in which he was very critical of the court of justice. Uh, he said the court of justice got it wrong on the facts and on the law. So he's spoken out, and I think that's in his favour. He's not going to bow down to uh, the opinion of these other judges. So. 
That's very interesting. Very controversial choice, but I. That may be uh, that may be part of why he was chosen. Uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah, do do a quick uh, survey of some of our friends here. You probably know some of these. They're you know legal lawyers themselves, or or uh, um, deal with geopolitical issues here. Uh, one said he's an international uh, law professor. The, I, the International Court of Justice is not a court of law in the ordinary sense. It's a political body. Uh, and that Barack, uh, he, he does not think that he'll have much sway on, on them. It may be the Western judges will be more open to him. Uh, and I had mentioned to him that Barack sometimes would defer to the military, but he says, no, when he was head of the Supreme Court, they probably intervened in military matters more than any court in the world. They usually defer to the courts on on real military war issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another one said, this is a good choice. He's exactly, these are all guys in our camp, center right, national, religious, and all. He said, good choice for this case. He's exactly the man to hold the South Africa accountable for this terrible anti-Semitism. And the third uh, believing lawyer here, he could not have chosen a better candidate from a professional perspective. He's our most respected justice internationally. And the fact that he publicly opposed the recent legal reforms gives him even more legitimacy. Brilliant move. So, uh, you know, differences of opinion here. We'll see yeah. how it goes. But Israel does have someone on the panel itself who has standing. I know he dealt only with Israeli law, but quite often he he really pushed this thing of Israel borrowing from British common law, from the law of other countries, setting precedents that were then incorporated into Israeli law. So he does have that sort of broad... Oh, look, absolutely. The, the Israeli Supreme Court is, is highly regarded internationally, certainly in the common law world. Um, as a brilliant, and he, you know, he is regarded as a as a brilliant uh, lawyer who, you know, took the legal analysis to a to a to a whole new level. But there is this other side, and I think there is a risk that he puts the law in a way higher than security issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, the law is is everything. Okay. <laughs> Is, yeah, uh, the pure—he's a purist in uh, as far as jurisprudence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he developed this whole philosophy that um, th- there is no, there are no gaps in the law. Though there's the, the law can resolve every problem in the world, mm-hmm. so we must look to the law for solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of people don't like that, and I, I, I personally also think there's a lot of. It's a very difficult um, philosophy to hold because uh, the law is not perfect, and it can be misused and manipulated and politicized. And politicized, and and as you say yourself, a lot of these judges they're not interested in the purity of the law. Yeah. Okay. As we uh, wind this up, we want to thank Andrew Tucker. I think what we're dealing with here, Andrew is uh, a lot of Holocaust scholars, they talk about Holocaust denial, uh, Holocaust reduction or minimization. This this would be uh, 
Abu Mazen, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, head of the PA, who says, no, there was only 600,000 Jews, perhaps, who killed, not 6 million in the Holocaust, Holocaust distortion. And then there's this animal called Holocaust inversion, mm. where Israel or the Jews are presented as just as bad as the Nazis, where you turn it around and say, you're like the Nazis, you're committing genocide. And this case is really uh, how it has gained legitimacy enough to be taken seriously at the world's highest court, this is a, a a very important moment for Israel tomorrow. Any last thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, I, well, I agree with you. It's sort of taking this whole lawfare against Israel to a to a new level, and it's um, the highest crime, genocide. Is it the highest crime? It's, it's the worst accusation you can make, uh, and and it's all going so fast. You know, within a matter of weeks, this has got before the court, and the court's making a decision on the basis of very uh, limited uh, information. So, I think it's very dangerous, and it's it could take on a life of its own because. Yeah. Um, you know, you have the Security Council, which will also get involved, and we'll, we'll see. And a big question will be, well, will the United States hold firm to its position, or is it going to start caving in a little bit? I think Blinken's in Israel at the moment, isn't he? Uh, uh, he's finishing up his time here, yeah. Right. Yeah. We've seen enough of him. <laughs> he's in go home now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's also if if Israel gets a favorable ruling out of this, where the court just defers and says we're we're not going to do this, then that that takes a lot of pressure off of Israel too. And yeah, uh, I don't know if there's any middle road here that the court could take. Uh, you know, just saying we're monitored, we're going to monitor it, and we're going to hear this later. I don't know, but. Uh, uh, it'll be very interesting, and new law being uh, uh, made, created as we as we go through this. But we thank you for your time and your expertise, Andrew Tucker of Think, the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation, an international uh, law specializing in issues related to Israel. Always good to partner with you, Andrew. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. I look forward to. Uh the conversations as this whole thing unfolds. Okay. That's our ICJ webinar for today. Make sure to join us tomorrow at 3 p.m. We'll have a Gaza war update from IDF Major Elliot Chadoff. He's been so good coming on and, and helping us understand all the security issues and everything involved in this conflict. He'll be back with us tomorrow, 3 p.m. Israel time. And of course, at the top of the hour today and tomorrow at 4 p.m. Israel time, our daily global prayer gathering during thousands of Christians, Christian leaders from all over the world praying for Israel. We're doing it every day until Israel can declare victory in this war. And uh, shalom from Jerusalem.